at odds with each other and they decided to split the church. But they owned their own building and so each party, each side, took the other to court to sue for the property. The judge threw the case out and sent it back to their denominational adjudication court. So they were part of a denomination that had a, a court system, much like we do. And so the case was given to the church court. And when it went through the whole process, the court, the, the denominational adjudication team, granted the property to one of the two parties. In the course of the investigation, as they unearthed all the reasoning and everything that went into this rift and the problem, they realized that somehow the whole thing traced back and began at a church dinner where an elder in the church sat down at the dinner table and was handed a plate and he noticed that the slice of ham on his plate was smaller than the slice of ham on the child's plate next to him. And there started the problem, which led to the church splitting and going to court. And of course, it made the newspaper. This all took place in Dallas, which is why your idea about moving to Texas, you should just put that out of your mind. <laughs> Bad things happen over there. Oh, crazy things can happen in churches. Crazy things can split churches, damage churches, embarrass the testimony of the gospel to the community. In our study through the book of Acts, we're learning a couple things. On the one hand, what makes the church, but we're also learning what breaks the church. So as we're working our way through this book, we find out this sort of rhythm of the power of God being on display and poured out upon and within and for God's people. And each time God's power is displayed, God's people stand up and proclaim. In our case, in the book of Acts, it's Peter, it's the apostles proclaiming Christ, explaining, teaching Christ. So it's, it's power, then Christ being proclaimed, and then people are added to the church. Disciples are made. People see the power. They hear the message of Christ, and God, by his Spirit, changes their hearts, and they're drawn in. They're adopted in. They become part of God's household. In the course of laying out this rhythm, as Luke is writing the book of Acts, and he starts inserting problems. First, there's persecution. There's opposition. And so on the one hand, Luke is wanting us to see and learn and have this, this conviction and this confidence that as the power of God moves and we are faithful to proclaim Christ, God will save people. It's, in a sense, unstoppable. It works. God's power and his word and the proclamation of Christ changes people's lives. 
But he also wants us to understand there are many enemies to this process and many things that would subvert it and sabotage it. And that while on the one hand, you and I here, this congregation, we need to be freshly inspired and encouraged that the gospel works. People do get saved. But also, he wants us to become increasingly aware there are things that can break the church as well. So we talked about the opposition coming and persecution. Stop talking about Christ. Trying to silence the message. But they would not be silenced. They proclaimed and God saved. And we saw the corruption come from within inside the church in the hearts of some of the members, Ananias and Sapphira. Another scheme of the enemy. How can we break the church? We can threaten from the outside. We can provoke hearts to sin and lie and hypocrisy and pretense from within. But it was confronted and a judgment was made and it only enhanced the godly fear of the Lord within the church and the gospel continued to build the church and to bear fruit. Now we're in Acts chapter 6 and another kind of problem arose, another potential means of dividing and destroying God's church. It appeared initially as nothing more than a, an administrative oversight the extremely fast-growing congregation experienced some growing pains. Some daily duties got overlooked. Some needs went unmet. And there wasn't enough administrative thought and muscle and strength and effort given to keep things running smoothly. But the apostles discerned that this was a problem that needed to be solved but a problem also that needed to be solved well. The health and testimony of the church was at stake. Let's read the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6 together. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas a proselyte of Antioch these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me just pull out three components here to give us a bit of an outline. The threatening problem, 
the critical solution and the desired result. Story, the account begins with the threatening problem. Problems of a growing congregation. The church took the needs of its congregants seriously. This was a big part of the church's testimony. The body of Christ takes care of its own. Local congregations are aware enough and desire and committed to caring for the needs of one another, in particular for the widows. Now, over time, whether it was established at this point or it came in a little later, there were certain criteria made for who would be put on the widow's list, their age, ability to work, whether or not they had immediate family that could care for them were all considerations. Nevertheless, they had within the church, with all these disciples being added, widows that needed regular care, regular provision for their livelihood. But at some point, the daily distribution of food to the widows was neglected. Getting this done required a certain amount of administration. Receiving the funds, managing the database of the widows, making the daily distributions to those on the list, all took time and effort to make sure it was happening on a daily basis. Now, when God is moving and you start adding people by the thousands in one meeting, you can only imagine how difficult this task quickly became. But the problem was compounded by the fact that there were certain widows that were being neglected, not just some widows being neglected. The church had members from two distinct groups that lived in Jerusalem at the time. Grecian Jews, or Hellenists, as our text says, and Hebrews. So the, the Hellenists, or the Grecian Jews, these were the Jews that had acclimated into the Greek culture of the day. They spoke Greek, and most likely, in many ways, were culturally Greek. The Hebrews, on the other hand, spoke Aramaic, and they were culturally amused, immersed in the Hebrew culture. So you had two cultures in the same city, maybe more, but these were the two predominant cultures in Jerusalem. And God was saving people out of both of these two categories. So the church was being comprised of both groups. And then the complaint comes because it was the Hellenists, the Grecian Jews. Those were the widows that were being neglected. Okay, now just a little side note. Luke uses the word complaint here. He could have said it a number of ways, but the particular word that he used tends to throw up a little flag about complaining. Israel has a little bit of a history when it comes to murmuring and complaining, especially when there's either not enough food or food that they don't like. There are many stories throughout the Old Testament where they complained and murmured about food. And it could be that Luke is throwing up a little bit of a flare and warning how dangerous complaining can be in the life of the church. Many church splits start with a complaint. Just a complaint, just a quiet, private little murmuring. 
Just, oh, those guys don't know what they're doing. They're not doing this well. This isn't going right. That's not right. Did you see that? Did you hear that? And the, and the murmuring, that's the word that Luke is using, this sort of whispering under your breath, murmuring, kind of private, uh, talking about what's wrong. So obviously this text is not solely about murmuring, but Luke chooses his words carefully and gives us a little warning here that this could go sideways, but they were on to something. So while murmuring and complaining certainly can be wrong and sinful, it doesn't mean what they were complaining about wasn't true. And because the neglect fell across these cultural or social lines, the sin of partiality was likely present, or at least presumed. At least it looked like the sin of partiality. It looked like one group was getting favored while another was getting neglected. So whether this was intentional or not, this became a very serious issue for a couple of reasons. The gospel builds a church community that takes care of its people. And so if anyone is neglected, the testimony of the church is diminished. This is serious. The church was taking this upon themselves. We want, and we've, we've got our deacons, and we've mandated them with the verse from Acts, let, let there not be a needy one among you. That's your aim. That's our desire. Let's make sure we know each other well enough so that if there's a need, the church is aware, and the church can act if it's appropriate. So the couple things that, that made this very serious was the church cares for its people, but secondly, the gospel builds a church community that supersedes racial, cultural, and social distinctions. And when this is neglected, the testimony of the church is diminished. We have a gospel that is for all people, not just a people group, not just a certain culture, but for all all and it is for all and it is equally for all and while there's this glory of all the diversity and variations in culture and skin color and languages and all this beautiful diversity when it comes to the gospel we are all the same we all come in with the same need and we all receive the same grace so somehow once you come in through the doors into the church well, all those distinctions might well still remain. Nevertheless, they mean something totally different inside the church. And once inside the church, there is no discrimination, no partiality. And when it does show up, becomes a serious problem. James chapter 2 talks about this. I know some of you are working your way through the through the book of James. And in chapter 2, it talks about the sin of partiality, making it very clear this is a sin. It, is, it comes from sinfully judging others and it's sinfully violating the law of love that the church is called to live under. We are called to live under the law of love where we care for one another, we love one another. And any kind of partiality of one group above or below another is a violation of that law of love. So here we have the problems, administrative growing pains, complaining, and partiality. 
any or all of these, if left unchecked, posed a real threat to the testimony and the well-being of God's church. So we move into point two, the critical solution. The apostles respond to solve the problem. They clearly identify this as a problem that needed to be solved. Some of you are familiar with the name Seth Godin. Some of you read some of his material. He makes a point of talking about the distinction and realizing the difference between a problem and a situation. A problem, by its very nature, has a solution and needs to be solved. A situation, on the other hand, is not a problem to be solved. A situation is something that we need to learn to adapt to or respond well to. So in our study, going back in the book of Acts, persecution comes. If they would have said persecution is a problem that we need to solve, well, okay, that would be a mistake because if you think persecution is a problem to be solved, here's the easy solution. Keep your head down and keep your mouth shut. And persecution will go away. That's how you solve persecution if you're thinking of it as a problem. But it's not a problem. It's a situation. It's a situation that we're called to respond rightly to. And so we read in our study how they responded to opposition and persecution was they prayed for boldness. They rejoiced in their worthiness to bear it to suffer it, and they continued to proclaim Christ. They responded to the situation of persecution, and they responded well. And again, we have the summary statement, and the word of God increased and people were getting saved, which is what we want to see. This was not a situation. This was a problem, a problem that needed to be solved. Administrative shortcomings are a problem to be solved. Neglect of care for the congregation is a problem to be solved. Partiality is a problem to be solved. But in this situation, the presumed solution was not the right solution. The presumed solution was apparently the apostles were in charge of this. We read earlier that Even when people were selling their property and making donations to the church, they would lay it all at the feet of the apostles, and the apostles would distribute it according to need within the congregation. Now the church was growing so fast, and you can see how easily this becomes untenable for them to continue to do. But, of course, the first reaction is these guys are not doing their job. They need to step it up. It's their responsibility. they got to figure out how to get this done. There's a real problem. It needs to be solved. And the apostles are there up front on the line to take the blame for what's going wrong. Now, they realize, they discern that this is a problem that needs to be solved. But they also realize if they're the ones who are going to solve it, what the implication of that is going to be is going to take them away from their primary calling and responsibility as apostles. Their proclamation of Christ was a key component of how God was building his church. God was displaying his power. 
the apostles were proclaiming Christ. And that was the formula. That's what was happening. That's how God was saving people, through that proclamation that followed up God's power. And so now they're being faced with a, with a dilemma. If we continue to handle all the finances and manage all the widows and the distribution and spend all our days doing this, we will have to neglect these things that we're called to that are most important for us to give ourselves to. It was a non-negotiable assignment for them. And it was necessary for the health and the strength of the church. They felt the tension that so many pastors feel to this day that is hard to avoid. It takes a lot to run a church. There's a lot of details. There's a lot of administrative stuff going on. There's a lot of meetings. There's a lot of stuff going on in the office. There are so many things you could be drawn in so many directions, and you can see how it would be so easy. There's the need. The complaint comes. It's a legitimate complaint. We've got to do more. We've got to spend more time. We've got to fix this problem. And yet, in the wisdom of God, they stopped it and said, there's a solution. It needs to be solved. But we are not it. We have to keep giving ourselves to prayer, studying God's word, preaching God's word. If we give that up, we will trade one problem for another. We will have solved nothing. We will be worse off. But there is a solution. They recommend another solution. They put forward, here's the plan, choose godly servants. They propose that to the congregation. Put forward seven men. It's important that the work needed to be done. It was important that the apostles did not do it so that they would not neglect their primary calling. And now we begin to see how the body of Christ begins to function getting others involved. Their qualifications are very important. The text tells us, choose men of good repute. In other words, they have a good name. They have an honorable reputation, which means they are people that were known. When someone would nominate Stephen in our text, it wasn't that Anybody was actually saying, well, I don't really know anything about him. It's a nice name. He seems like a nice guy, but I don't really know him. I don't know what his character is like. I've not interacted with him. That couldn't be the case. Could I just insert some quick application? Friends, make yourself known. You've got to be known. We need to know who you are. When the need arises and there's positions and work and things that need to be done, who you are is important. And you're not a resume of skill set. I can do this. I can do that. I can do the other thing. No, we're, we're looking for good reputation, people of repute, people of honorable reputation. But you have to be known. You see the, the importance of the community life of the local church. How we have to know one another. Even to meet the needs. How many times has there been needs unmet in this congregation? Because nobody knew. 
If you're not in a community group and sharing and interacting and participating, the chances that nobody will really know you is a very real possibility. And do you see how quickly everything about what the church is supposed to be begins to break down to non-existence? Men of good repute, choose people filled with the Spirit. Okay, being filled with the Spirit is a wonderful description for every Christian. It's a description that would, could be, should be applied to every believer. We are filled with the Spirit. But it's not necessarily the description that comes to mind for every Christian, is it? But as you get to know someone and you observe them, and you hear them speak, especially how they speak about the Lord, how they refer to God's word, how they apply God's word, how they respond in godly ways to life's situations. There is a time when all of a sudden, filled with the Spirit, comes to mind when you think of that person because you've observed them living the Christian life. You observe a soul that is surrendered to God's word. And that is proof positive that the Spirit of God is at work and alive in that person's soul. We could say, theologically, if you're a believer in Christ, you're filled with the Spirit. But that's not the same thing as knowing you and experiencing it and seeing it and observing it and having that come to mind. Oh, now that I know you, I say, there's a person filled with the Spirit of God. This is a way to describe a Christian who's walking in the Spirit. And walking in the Spirit is someone who is living in the good of God's grace, aware of God's presence, and allowing God's Word to be the final say on how life is lived. And when you have those components active in your life, the people that you meet and people that you know will say about you, there's a person filled with the Spirit and full of wisdom. People who had a proven reputation of living life with wisdom, the fear of the Lord, a sense of justice, a sense of compassion, self-control, especially in their speech, all these and many more are traits of wisdom. And so as we know each other and we see each other grow and live and walk before the Lord, for many of you, that's what comes to mind. There's a person full of wisdom. Note this, in God's church, character outflanks practical giftings and personal skills. Notice the text. Find somebody with the latest database, best software to manage thousands of people's names and track giving and track daily distribution. Find some administrative skill. No, who are we looking for? Good reputation, godly, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. Technology has changed life, and I understand there are certain things that, that require knowledge. But if you think about living the Christian life, you don't need a degree to do 
much of any of it. It's loving people. It's caring for people. It's sharing. It's giving. It's helping. It's, it's serving. The, the Christian life is like, it's, it's stuff that all of us are capable of doing. And it's the beauty of the body of Christ just functioning together, caring for one another. If our heart's not right with the Lord, if we're not walking in the Spirit, if we're not walking with the Lord, God is unimpressed with our talents. They're really not that useful in his house. Third point, we have the desired results. Well, first, early on, we have a happy congregation. Everybody was pleased with what the apostles proposed. The whole congregation was pleased. No more complaining. And everyone was participating in the solution. The congregation was able to put forward those seven servants because the congregation was functioning as a family, because they knew one another well enough to say, oh, when you list off these qualifications, I know exactly who comes to mind. And the apostles were freed up to give themselves to the work that God had assigned to them, prayer, study, preaching. But then we have this wonderful verse 7 summarizing the word continued to increase and the number of disciples increased. This is Luke's refrain summary that he will use several times. In fact, this is one of six times we'll come across a statement very similar to this one where Luke uses it to sort of recap the results of a situation. From the outset, Dangerous, threatening things were happening in the church that could have broke it, divided it, caused destruction, caused harm. But the problem was addressed and the problem was solved. And now we have a healthy church. And we see the signs of the healthy church that come through, that the word continued to increase and the number of disciples increased. Keeping a high priority on God's word in the church. This is important. This is important for us as a church. We are constantly adjusting and making sure and holding this as a priority. Do the pastors have adequate time? Are they giving adequate time in God's word? Are you getting half-baked sermons? Are, or are they prepared? And are, are you being fed God's word. You can evaluate how well we're doing this or not, but nevertheless, this is our aim. This is our desire. This is our goal. This is our constant evaluation. Are we doing this? If we're not doing this, nothing else matters. We're, 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 we're failing. If we drift away, if we start perceiving, you'd rather hear a TED talk than, than a sermon. I just think the people would like something like that a little bit different. And so we start to put aside God's word we will be failing. There will be no summary statement for Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena that the word of God continues to increase and the disciples continue to increase. And this is what we're after. We are not about trying to entertain you. We are about feeding you God's word, healthy diet of what does God say? Who is God? Who are we? 
What did Christ accomplish for us? Do you know that? Do you understand that? Do you live in the good of that? This is our aim. This is what we desire to do. This is what we evaluate every Tuesday. What about that sermon? Was the gospel in that sermon? Did you preach the text well? Did you, did you say what God said in that text? Or were you just making up stuff? And we go through this evaluation every week and keep ourselves in line because of this is a priority for us because it is a priority for you it is a priority for the health and well-being of any local church and they kept a high priority of caring for one another they currently have a, a deacon team that is overseeing and managing the church's benevolence fund and we've got much thanks to give to this team foster brereton jill kakuyu stefan Kanos, yanni sylvester and jeff trevor these folks are doing a tremendous job when needs come aware into the church and and the need arises this team goes to work and they press in and they do their investigation they ask their questions and they make their decisions with this in mind that there's no needy one among us as a tremendous blessing and personally i can't tell you how much i appreciate this team and how fun it is for me to watch because before we had them people call up the church walk into the church and say i would like some money i need a hotel room and so i close my book and i stop what i'm doing and i hear a story and i talk with somebody and i go drive over here and i bring a bag of groceries here and i go to this hotel and take care of this and and eventually i realize we need some deacons and we have them and it's a huge blessing for us as pastors and for you as a church as well. All right, worship team, you can come on up. You know, sometimes the craziest things can destroy a church. Too small slice of ham can do it. There are many ways that the enemy of God seeks to destroy the work of God. But the church that Jesus purchased is the means God has chosen to carry out his plan to redeem people from every people. And you and I are part of that. This church is part of that. And we are being sent in two weeks on a missions trip to do that very thing. That's what this is all about. We have a great calling from God to be a part of a great plan. Okay? Can't promise your seats are going to be the most comfortable. Can't promise the room's going to be as pretty as you would like it. Hopefully the guys will be able to make the sound work in that new place. Hopefully we'll get things set up on time. Everybody will work hard. Everybody will do their best. And we'll see how it goes. But we're not there for that. We're there because God is sending us into a new community that needs the gospel. Needs the Lord. And you and I need to put on display out of the abundance of grace in our hearts an attitude, a heart attitude, a joy, a servanthood where we gather together and we fill that, that dumpy room with praise and blow the roof off and let the neighbors hear us singing the praises of a glorious Christ and a glorious gospel. We want to see people's lives be changed. Most of you in the room 
have been transformed by this wonderful gospel. And the reasons God left us here, the reason we're not in heaven yet, is because he wants to use us to see that take place in more and more and more people's lives. Let's stand together. Let's commit ourselves to it. Father, we're yours. We're yours as your servants. We're yours as your worshipers. We're yours in your hands as tools to use how you please. Go before us. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Help us to walk humbly before you, diligently because of you, all for your glory in Jesus' name.